Hello and welcome to another episode of Try iPod, the MD-PhD admissions podcast. I'm here with Dr. Kara Maxwell, another Try i alum. Welcome. Hello. Thanks for having me. Dr. Maxwell, uh, we usually start out with a general question. Uh, what do you do and why? I am currently uh, a translational researcher in cancer genetics. Um, I am a Uh, board certified in medical oncology and internal medicine, and I spend about 80% of my time doing research on the inherited susceptibility to cancer, and about 20% of my time in the clinic um, doing cancer risk uh, evaluation. You would characterize your career as still having that balance of the MD and PhD kind of work. Absolutely. Um, I chose this um, career path, and I'm still, you know, still learning, of course, um, but I chose this career path because it really marries my clinical interests, which is in medical oncology. Um, I did a fellowship in medical oncology and uh, with my research interests, which has always been in the genetics of disease. And so I do spend um, a portion of my time at the bench, um, uh, really trying to focus on patient samples and really taking observations that we see clinically and trying to understand them at a more fundamental level. Uh, So uh, it's really uh, a wonderful thing that um, I get to do. Great. So you make a particularly good example of uh, the work of the MD-PhD, which is amazing. Um, So just to step back towards your uh, initial education at Tri-I, what experiences did you bring with you to your first year? Like, did you feel as if um, it was a huge sort of culture shock or were you surprised by anything Um, What was your level of, like, preparedness and comfort initially? Yeah, well, I think that in general, uh, one is never prepared for any of the transitions that they make in life, are never going to feel prepared. They probably are actually over-prepared for the transition that they're going to make, but they're, you're never going to actually feel that way. Um, the experience that I had, I knew, I actually didn't really know sort of growing up that I was going to be a doctor or going to go to medical school. Um, I was very interested in genetics um, early on, and I actually went to college planning to be a genetic counselor. Um, And so um, then I will be perfectly honest, I was interested in science, knew nothing about it. No one in my family had gone to grad school or med school or anything like that. And I was at a big university, University of Wisconsin. um, And my counselor basically said, well, get a job in a lab. That's kind of a thing where you can make some money and you can get some experience. And um, I think like for many of us, that's really um, a critical there is often a critical point where you meet somebody who's going to sort of change your sort of career path. And I um, was really fortunate to have a really great postdoc. And I ended up working uh, throughout my sophomore, junior and senior years um, in one laboratory at University of Wisconsin. It was a very basic science cell biology laboratory. Um, And I ended up staying there for a year after my undergrad as well, uh, because I was just really having so much fun and didn't really feel um, like I wanted to give up the projects at that point. Um, So, I actually felt from a research standpoint, now looking back, I certainly didn't feel at the time. Looking back, I was actually probably pretty prepared from a research standpoint. Um, My mentors had really uh, encouraged me to present at national meetings, um, to write abstracts, to write papers, to be involved in lab meeting. And I really think that that was critical to then being successful as a graduate student. Now that I meet people applying for both MD, PhD and PhD programs, I think having a significant amount of research experience as an undergrad is really important. So then you may ask, well, why did I do an MD, PhD um, over a PhD? And that was really a big uh, decision for me um, and a difficult one, but I didn't want to give up the aspect of um, taking care of patients. Like I said, I initially wanted to be a genetic counselor. And so to me, that's the MD, PhD program was sort of the best way um, to marry that. 
Um, but I really didn't have much <laughs> clinical experience when mm -hmm. I started. And so I definitely felt, um, in comparison to some of my medical school colleagues, a bit underprepared in that standpoint. And for that, I probably really was. Mm -hmm. um, but you do start off with the clinical part of the MD-PhD. Exactly. Uh, so exactly. I guess, did you find that to be helpful in terms of just yeah. being right in the trenches right away? Exactly. People come now to medical school from such diverse backgrounds. It was actually, and when I again, when I look back at it, not even a, not even a small concern. Some people had come from huge amounts of volunteering experiences prior to medical school, and other people had come from incredibly diverse backgrounds, had worked in, you know, in other jobs for a number of years before starting medical school. So you all sort of end up at square one and um, at the beginning. And so there's really, in my opinion, um, no issue with that. And, you know, medical school is, you know, in and of itself a long time. And so you have plenty of time to sort of normalize all that stuff. So I'm not saying that you shouldn't do um, clinical experiences if you're preparing for an MD-PhD, um, but I don't think that you need to stress out about trying to have a really large number of different things to prepare, I actually think sort of focusing on one um, area is probably going to be better off for you in the long run. So how did you, uh, sort of along those same lines, uh, how did you deal with the transitions between that are inherent to the MD-PhD program between clinical study to uh, the research part of the PhD and then back to clerkships? So I think that this is a really important um, issue and something that is so important as you move forward because you're going to be doing that for the rest of your career is sort of be wearing, you know, these two very different hats all the time. And so for me, it was a little bit different um, because I met my current husband um, in my first year of medical school and he was straight MD. So I sort of witnessed the straight MD transitions at the same time as I was doing the MD-PhD transition. Okay. And so... Um, it was interesting to to do to have that perspective, and I think it's 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 hard. I mean, there's there's literally sort of no way around it. And different programs try a lot of different structures to ease the transition. So at the time that I went through the TriI program, we did one month of a medicine clerkship prior to going into our PhD. I loved it. It was the it was so much fun. It made me feel like all those things came together. I had just taken step one of the boards, and so all that clinical stuff came together. Um, um, and then, oh, now I'm going into lab and I was stressing out about trying to figure out a, you know, was I going into the right lab? Was I picking the right mentor? All this kind of stuff. And so there was no way that that transition wasn't going to be stressful. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that, um, you know, really made a huge difference, obviously, was the support amongst my other colleagues. Um, even at the time that I went through the our program is large, there was 11 of us in my class of MD-PhDs. And having that group of people is so critically important because they're all doing the same thing that you're doing. So you're not doing it alone. And each step of the way, we helped each other out. In fact, I'm going on vacation, even though we started together 17 years ago, three of us are, or four of us are going on vacation with all of our families and our nine children, Oh wow! Um, you know, <laughs> next week, actually. That's awesome. Um, which is just sort of a testament to like how close you become and, you know, what a great set of people you are able to be with um, in the, in the triad program. Um, I think probably the hardest transition, much, much harder is going from your graduate school to back to medical school. And a lot of 
of that is from, I'll be honest, from an ego standpoint, you become really, really good in the lab. You um, are really well respected. People come to you. You've given potentially talks, published papers, all this stuff. And then you go to be a lowly third year medical student in a very hierarchical system. Um, and that is a definitely uh, a challenge, not only just from the knowledge you're trying to learn, but just even from just frankly an ego standpoint. Yeah. Um, and so um, I relied a lot on the fact that my husband had gone through it. We were married by that time prior to me and, you know, sort of just dealing with that and getting advice from people who had already gone through it, just how to work in a completely different culture. Um, because being a medical student and a resident, it's a very different culture. Um, but I think in general, people who decide to do MD-PhD programs are very resilient. And so, you know, you make it through, you rely on your supporters, and it's it it's all works out. Great. That's interesting that you bring that up because that's, as someone who is outside that system, that's something that I've always seen as what I assume to be the hardest part of, um, especially you mentioned the ego thing, like dealing with patients. Uh, you know, like I imagine that that's, that is something that you have, it's the amount of emotional labor you're suddenly expected yes. to do. Um, after being in a in the lab, which is not that there's necessarily no aspect of that to research, but it's an entirely different paradigm. It's an entirely different paradigm, and you have to have this new mindset. And the way that I think that um, is one of the more effective ways to deal with it is to remember the things that your PhD, how they, how the things you learned in your PhD actually help you take care of patients. And it may seem like something that's not very intuitive, but the way that you ask questions in the lab is not really much different than the way you work up a patient with a new diagnosis, say, coming in. You know, you have to get the data, analyze it, think about what you're going to do to test um, your hypothesis of what the patient has, um, and and go from there. And the, the, the difference is the fact that there's a person in front of you. And so honestly, it makes it, um, you know, obviously even more rewarding. The one big difference that I will say is, uh, is um, harder that you can't draw the same parallels to is that in the lab, as everyone knows, you're sort of going along without really daily successes and then, you know, a lot of failures. And then yeah. hopefully one time you'll become to a, a, a big success where the difference is that in patient care, there are successes and failures coming at you every single day. And so that sort of difference was was hard, was hard, but then at the same time really rewarding because I felt like every day I just, if I could step back and say, well, I made this difference, that was, that, that was important. So just to switch gears for a second, you mentioned it before, the process of uh, choosing a mentor and how that was stressful at the time. Can you expand a little bit more on that? Yeah. So um, I had mentioned I was very in a very basic science undergraduate laboratory working in uh, mechanisms of cell division and cell cycle. And I thought I was going to stay in a similar field um, for my Ph.D. Through the course of the first two years, I really realized that I actually wanted to study something more closer to the genetics of human disease. And so I was sort of forced faced with the fact that starting into my third rotation, I was looking for a mentor who did that. And um I ended up finding Jan Breslow, who ended up being my mentor, is still my mentor. I actually was on the phone with him two days ago to go over Ames for a grant that I'm writing. Which, That's great, um, though. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, and I was really worried about 
the switch of fields. Even though I was very interested in that field, I thought, well, maybe I should be sticking with what I know more. Um, there's a limp, you know, we are more limited in our time, um, you know, feeling more pressure to do our PhDs and maybe a quicker amount of time. And so was it really a good idea to be switching fields? But I actually chose Jan for my mentor because of him, because I knew the relationship that we had, I could tell very quickly, was going to be really productive. And um, uh, actually, when I was a student, um, Ray Socio, another alumni, and I had done sort of a peer mentoring sort of workshop. And that was sort of our tenant all the time to people when they were choosing um, mentors was that you will often, as long as you're moderately interested in the project, you will get interested in it. And a somewhat less interesting project with a good mentor will likely become a very interesting and successful project, whereas a really interesting project with a bad mentor will likely fail. Hmm. Um, and it's just sort of name of the game. You have to have, there's never a period of time that's more critical to having someone that you work with really well. So it seems as if um, there's this hidden emphasis on like emotional or psychological acuity that goes into the success of an MD-PhD <laughs> student. Um, and that's, from our end, that's something that's hard to quantify, mm-hmm. um, especially from the process of selecting students to the process of supporting them throughout mm-hmm. um, the institution. So is that something that you encounter a lot? Yeah, I mean, I think if I'm getting your question um, correctly, I think that it's not something that I had at the time. It's not like I had a lot of these, you know, in thoughts at the time. And there's certainly the benefit of being um, looking back. Um, but I think, and one thing that I um, I feel really, really strongly about, again, when you're sort of choosing a program is the support that you have within the program because then those people are the ones who are constant. They see the whole transition from the first year to the seventh or eighth year student and beyond. Um, And I went in and talked to Ruthie a lot, who's Mm -hmm. our program administrator, a lot over the course of the time. And I may not have had some of those insights that I have now, but she had a lot of those insights. And so having a place where you feel that there's a real open door policy um, and having a very centralized and well-organized program, I think is what's really important, much more so than if you were doing a straight PhD or a straight MD, because there are just challenges in this that are not the same in either individual field. So you need a specific MD-PhD oriented type of person to help you with those challenges. And actually now at the other end, the end where I'm at now, um, transitioning from um, being a postdoctoral fellow to into um, being assistant professor, you realize that in the clinical world, we don't have that same kind of um, organized system for physician scientists. And it's actually, um, I think, a problem and really a lot of departments, I think, are trying to model an MD-PhD type system to help the emotional support of people, you know, throughout their sort of physician scientist career. Great. That's really, I'm really glad you brought that up because in a lot of ways, that's the point of this podcast to kind of get that like subjective uh, first person angle on this stuff, which I think is the hardest thing to really uh, distribute, especially to, you know, prospective applicants or first Mm -hmm. years, that sort of thing. Did you feel supported throughout the various transitions of the MD-PhD program or in the, you mentioned that you talked to uh, the administrative director, Ruth Gotian, a lot. Um, so that's one form of, you know, in-person support. Mm-hmm. But especially because um, you move between institutions a lot and you yes. ha- encounter different people who have different sort of workplace cultures, that yep. sort of thing. 
Um, yep. Did you feel supported throughout, or were there areas where you felt that there could be improvement, that sort of thing? Mm-hmm. Um, so I focused. I was mostly just at Cornell and Rockefeller um, because I I didn't do any. I did actually. I, that's actually not true. I did my first rotation at Memorial, but it was my first rotation, and I barely had any idea what area my head like where I lived at that point um but um so for the most part I was just at Cornell and Rockefeller so it's interesting because Rockefeller is obviously and granted this could have changed in the number of years it's you know it's its own very robust PhD program so they have their own sort of system and so sometimes it did feel well okay I've got this MD PhD program I have to answer to then I have this graduate school I have to answer to and don't forget I am going to still have to go back to med school um but I felt like everybody really worked um very seamlessly together. And I think that, again, it's small enough that, and the MD-PhDs program and the students are known enough that it works out. And the reason I say that is because I was back in New York for a talk recently, happened to go visit Jan at Rockefeller and um, Sid Strickland, uh, the dean um, at Rockefeller. You know, I see him in the hallway and I haven't seen him in 10 years and he remembered who I was and he asked me how things were going. And, you know, so it just really goes to show that there's the community is large enough to give you opportunities, but small enough that there is that sort of personal relationship. So uh, as you said, the relationship uh, being important as someone who has graduated, um, how would you characterize your ongoing uh, both, you know, emotional and working relationship to the TriI program as an alum? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, it's, it's like everything. You go back and forth. The one really big challenge with being an MD, um, PhD, is that after you finish the program, you spend a lot of years being very, very clinical. Um, and so for me, that was... Uh, you know, going back to med school, I still kept some research ties going, but then I switched institutions, went to Columbia for my internal medicine residency, um, and for those three years, completely focused on medicine. And I don't think I probably had any contact with anyone in the tri program over that time because it was just, you know, the nature of, um, of being a resident. And I had my first child at that time as well. Um, and then I came to University of Pennsylvania for fellowship. Um, and I feel now that I'm back sort of, you know, and for the last four or five years back in the research realm, I've found reason to contact the MD-PhD program about, you know, some rant I have about gender disparities in academic medicine or just, you know, advice about, um, you know, some sort of aspect of, of something. So I think that it really, that, that, the general theme is that the program has been very always responsive to me. Olaf, you know, has been very responsive to me anytime I've emailed. It's just that for me, just depending on what I where I am at the stage, I might not have had much contact with them. Um, but okay, um, so you mentioned that you uh, had a child over the course of your career. Mm-hmm. And uh, you mentioned that there are uh, gender disparities, especially in academic medicine. Um, feel You could feel free to uh, expand on that if you want. Yeah. No, I think that this, and I was hoping that we would somehow roundabout a way get to this. So, um, you know, uh, despite the fact that it's been, um, you know, a lot of push to increase um, gender equality in academic medicine, we're just not there. Um, there's still less applicants to MD-PhD programs um, in women applicants than men. Um, so not only are there issues farther on, but there's still less women going in. Um, and I think that, you know, the sort of always elephant in the room is that it has to do with the kid thing. Um, and I just think that, um, so I'll tell you, my personal story was that I uh, met my husband first year, 
we got married during my PhD. Um, and for us, the right time to have a child ended up being when I was a resident. Um, and I had a lot of people say, you're nuts. Why would you do that? That's so crazy. Well, the news flashes for any of you who are thinking about um, doing MD PhD and you think that you might want to have a kid at some point, regardless if you're a man or a woman, there is literally no good time to have a kid. Um, so you do it. <laughs> when you and your partner are ready to do it. And it requires family support, financial support, um, no matter when that's going to be. It's not easier for my um, female colleagues who are done, because you're never really done. You're still working towards your career. Um, and it's not any easier really at any time. It's just so my advice always is that that should literally not even enter into your consideration about what you're going to do with your life if you're a woman or a man. Um, so, like I said, for us, we were ready when I was a resident. Um, being pregnant, working 90 hours a week was hard, but wow. I did it. Um, you can kind of do anything that you set your mind to. Mm -hmm. um, and um, it was actually a really good time. I had 43 other residents in my program, um, in my class, in my program, because I was in medicine. So they covered for me when I needed it. Um, it was a really supportive atmosphere. Um, and then um, I did make a decision, which is sort of probably a woman-centric uh, decision, was that uh, after we had our first child, my husband was finishing fellowship. He was looking for his first job. And it just made more sense for me to take a year between residency and fellowship so that we could line up in our move um, for his job. And so we were lucky enough to be able to have a second child during that period. Um, and so, um, and, uh, you know, that was a decision I made and people have said, you know, you can't do that. You can't take any time off. You can't have a gap on your CV. Well, you know, whatever, I'm doing fine. And it just <laughs> is what it is. Um, and so I think that again, you really just do the things that are right for you and, um, and it, they work out, they require a lot of support, like I said, um, but they do work out. Um, so from the other topic standpoint, we just aren't there. Um, there's still very clear um, disparity in the number of women um, in uh, tenure track positions at all levels, assistant professor, associate full. Um, so it's really not a not enough people issue. There's enough women. There's just still issues. And I think that it reflects a lot of inherent um, biases that potentially exist still in, in academic medicine. The really great thing is that they're being discussed, um, and uh, which I feel has changed since the 17 years since I first started, um, and being discussed more in a realistic stamp way. Like I feel like before they were discussed and it was like, well, this is an issue, but nobody really had any practical solutions feel like there's a lot more emphasis on practical solutions now. Um, and I think that all we can do is just keep going forward and seeking out women who've been successful. And, you know, they may not have to be your primary mentor, but the one thing that happens when you get later on in your career is maybe you had one mentor um, when you're a PhD, when you're later on and when you're in all aspects of your more junior career, you're going to have multiple mentors. So you may have a scientific mentor and then you may have a woman who you is sort of like your life mentor. So I have successful women who I take um, a lot of advice from on how they run their lives. Um, this really great thing is, you know, on Facebook now is there's 
um, a physician moms group, which is like 50,000 women who are all physicians and have kids. There's an offshoot called Academic Research Moms, um, which I find really useful because it's women who are, you know, um, scientists and academic who are kids. And we rant about every last thing to each other. And it's it's awesome. Yeah, I think it, it has. Uh, if, if it's any comfort, I think that the most not only have the most recent uh, incoming classes of Tri-I been about 50-50 mm-hmm. um, in terms of gender, but um, I have heard those conversations go on about family planning, but as yes. like, uh, not as like, oh, as a woman, how do you think you'll yes. go about this? It's about like, Absolutely. it's about, you know, people who want, especially because there's such a high incidence of people marrying each other within the program, <laughs> yeah. uh, I guess just due to the number <laughs> of people you see per day, but um, it's, I think I've heard it discussed more often in terms of like, oh, or how, how are we going to do this yes. Yes. instead of how am I going to do this? Exactly. I say that this is the analogy that I've heard um, over and over and over again that we need to get away from. So doing becoming a physician scientist or being an academic person in general, it's a marathon. And women and men start the marathon together. They're both encouraged. You can do this. You're going to be great. You're going to finish those miles with no issue. And then somewhere along the way, like mile 17 or so, you know, they start saying, well, you, you know, you, you, you can probably do it, but have you thought about how you're going to do it to the women? But nobody asks the men that question. And those things start to eat at you over the marathon that people have asked you, well, how are you going to do that? How are you going to do this? Either ask the question to both men or women or don't ask the question at all. Yeah. Um, and so I'm happy to see that, um, you know, one of my big pushes, and I'm very vocal about it, is is uh, family policies. And, you know, this isn't like this is an issue just for us. And the Department of Defense, I believe it was, had an article recently about family policies because there you have to move away from policies that are specific to women. They have to be family policies. So it's the only one, one of the small ways that we can try to change the culture. But we, you know, as much as I've tried to be you know, very rosy. It's we still have a long way to go. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time here. Um, was there anything else you wanted to bring up before we wrap up? No, just uh, you know that it's it's really the best possible career. I mean, I absolutely love what I do and wouldn't have changed despite all the struggles. And it's there's a lot. Um, there's nothing else I would have done. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Maxwell, for your time and your passion. I think a lot of people will benefit from uh, hearing your perspective on this. That was another episode of the Try iPod. Good night, everyone. Good night.